Well, greetings. It's so good to be with you. My name's Roger, and um, I give leadership to the Common Ground Church Bloberg uh, congregation, but it's a privilege to be speaking to you wherever you are. And I loved uh, Donnie's invitation last week, just uh, in starting and uh, in listening into this message to potentially just in your space, whether you're alone or whether you're with a, a group of people, to maybe just choose somebody uh, or, or yourself to take a moment uh, when I say so to push pause and uh, to just pray and invite God to speak to you and to the group that you're with, that he would, uh, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, speak into your space, speak into the specific journeys that uh, are represented in your lives in the room that you're in. It's uh, so good to be with you. Push pause now. So a question I've been asking myself and, and, and I think is really important for all of us to ask is what is it that thing that causes us sometimes to miss out on some of the most important stuff and the most valuable and the most lovely stuff in our lives? Uh, how many times have you looked at a person, a loved one, and, and there's something so good that's right before them? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a career opportunity. And for whatever reason, they don't take it. They miss the good that's lying right in front of them. It feels like a, a tragedy, right? It feels so wrong that you could see somebody and, 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 and I suppose see ourselves sometimes missing out. And a, a lot of the language that we use around this is often called FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. Because as I speak about that, I don't think anybody who's listening is saying to me, you know what? I love missing out on good stuff. I'll gladly miss out on a great thing. No, nobody says that. We all want to make sure that our one and only lives are spent on the best possible things, right? Yeah, of course. But I think Jesus introduces us to not just the fear of missing out, but a different kind of FOMO. I think Jesus is going to introduce us to the fact of missing out. What we're about to see in this story is a group of people, namely the Pharisees, who don't just have a fear of missing out, but are very likely going to experience the fact of missing out. That right before them, the very Savior, who we've been building up towards seeing, uh, Israel have been awaiting a Messiah. The world has been needing a Savior. And Mark has been writing chapter after chapter, starting in chapter one, where he says, Jesus uh, introduces, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming. The kingdom of God is right here. And he's basically introducing himself and he's saying, I am the king. But he doesn't say that yet in as many words. And slowly but surely, he begins to reveal not only that there is a kingdom, but that he is the king and that he has authority over all kinds of things. This is how he's beginning to reveal himself. And yet amazingly, we watch as these different people respond differently to the king who's right before them, to the person of Jesus right in front of them. And it's one of the tragedies of so much of the Bible is not just the fear of missing out that lives in some, but the fact of missing out that happens in many. Hey, even as uh, you've been praying and as I've been praying for you, is that my prayer is that you don't miss out on the very good things that God has for you, especially 
his son. And today I want to look at this passage as we begin to see this yet another clash of powers, yet another moment whereby the kingdom of God comes up against other very powerful forces of big questions that are asked of Jesus and who he is. And it's just one of these fascinating moments. And Jesus, in this clash of powers, seems to not be as concerned as many of us are in our day and age with uh, the, the clash of left and right, Republican versus Democrat, whatever your view of the world is. He's not as concerned exactly about those views as much as what's going on in the heart of each human when they live out those views, when they're expressing love to humanity. That, Jesus cares so much more, as we've seen in the last few weeks, about what's going on inside than exactly about what we're doing on the outside. I don't know about you, uh, if you know this story, but um, uh, I've been married for 10 years to Nikki, uh, and we've got three lovely kids, and and I'm just so grateful. I, I married the girl of my dreams. But a part of the story you don't know about, speaking of the fear of missing out, was that after three months of dating, listen to it, we broke up. We literally broke up and uh, no relationships are perfect and all relationships have their challenges. Well, Nix and I broke up and uh, for various reasons, I uh, broke up with her, to be honest with you. And there's the chance I just didn't know what was right in front of me. And there's a chance that in many people's lives, as Jesus reveals himself, we don't know what's right in front of us. And I'll tell you a little more of that story if you stick with me. But uh, another story, Maybe an analogy that could really help you. I'm a surfer and we live out in Bloberg. And one of the things that happens from time to time is you'll arrive in the parking lot and you'll be looking at these beautiful waves and you're going, uh, I'm ready to go surfing. And then before you know it, this mist starts to roll in off the sea. And before you can even blink, the waves that you could once see out there are no longer visible. In fact, it's hard to even see the shoreline where the waves are crashing onto the sand. This mist rolls in and suddenly what seems so clear and so easy is no longer clear and easy to see. Hey, that can happen with people's lives where they miss out on the good that's lying right in front of them. Hey, Jesus is revealing his kingliness and he's revealing his kingdom. And so we're in chapter eight of Mark and let's read this together. During those days, another large crowd gathered as they did with Jesus. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave thanks to uh, gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them, also, and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Del Manutha. Now, notice here another demonstration of the king and his kingdom. 
Do you see that? This kingdom is breaking in. It's breaking into their worlds and they're witnessing that he isn't just a person who's saying all kinds of crazy stuff. He is demonstrating with very practical things that he is actually heaven and earth true king. He is actually the one that he says he is. And slowly but surely, their eyes are opening. This time, he performs an incredible miracle. He's just got a few loaves and a couple of fish, and he turns this uh, tiny amount of food into a massive amount of food that could feed 4,000 people. This is an inbreaking of God's kingdom. It's a radical miracle of his kingliness to show who he is and what he's like and what the kingdom is like. Hey, maybe we can just notice four things about this kingdom before we look at how some people missed out on the king and his kingdom. Firstly, notice that Jesus is king over matter itself. Everything in this world, every piece of matter that exists, Jesus is king over. This is a miraculous moment. Science cannot explain what just happened to turn a couple of loaves into a whole meal for 4,000 people. Hey, the king of our kingdom, the king of, of Jesus' kingdom is able to turn matter and multiply it for the feeding of many. Hey, he's also a king with great compassion. He's a king with great compassion. He's got mercy on the crowds. Now, I'm going to try a little tongue twister here because the, the word for compassion, you don't, I don't know if you saw that, it said he has had compassion on them. The word is splanschizomai. Splanschizomai. Maybe you can try to say that one. It's a real mouthful. However, this is a, an important word because it actually is the word that describes the guts, the, the inside of a person. It describes the fact that when Jesus looked out over the crowd, he felt deep compassion. He wasn't just trying to accomplish a task so that he could you know, be crowned the king. No, the king of this kingdom felt deeply for the people. He looked over there and he didn't just see people whose stomachs were hungry. He saw people who needed to know that there was a king and a kingdom that was going to bring redemption to the world. He wanted to reveal himself. He wanted them to have a, a windfall of grace come upon their lives. He cared so much. Wow, doesn't the world need some compassion right now? Don't we need an inbreaking of this kingdom of compassion through the church, through people like you and I to bring fresh compassion on a polarized and hostile world? Hey, that's the kingdom of God. Hey, he's also a king who provides. He's a king who provides. You, you spot that? He looks at 4,000 people and he says, I have enough. It reminds me of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me. This beautiful sense of provision. He loves to provide. He loves to provide and he, he's got excess. Notice there was even left over. Uh, I don't know where you're needing provision now. I think all of us in different areas, not just financial, although some are coming to the end of each month going, where is the next meal coming from? How am I going to afford this? Some of us are looking inside and it's dark and it's, it's depressing when we look inside of ourselves. Our thought life. We're needing some provision of grace, some breakthrough. Hey, Jesus is revealing that he is a king and his kingdom is a kingdom where he brings provision. Provision of joy, provision of life, provision of love. And we should not look elsewhere. The king stands before us. It's also a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of love. He's feeding a group of all sorts of people. 4,000 people. Let me assure you that in that crowd, there were both Democrats and Republicans. 
I said it. Really, that, 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 this crowd had ANC supporters and EFF and DA supporters all in one place. They were all together. I don't know who you vote for. I don't know what you believe about the world. But let me tell you that Jesus had in this crowd all manner of people and he fed them all because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. And it's a kingdom whereby when we come under this king, everything aligns under his leadership and we learn to love all manner of people. Hey, that's the story of the kingdom of God. And that's the kingdom that's breaking in in this beautiful passage as Jesus multiplies just a few loaves and fishes and starts to show his kingdom. Should we keep, keep reading? The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, warned Jesus. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed uh, this with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke five loaves for the 5,000 and how many uh, basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Uh, Twelve, they replied. And when I broke seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Jesus is a masterful teacher. And it's really important to, to see how brilliant of a teacher he is. You see, any good teacher, if you know it, a teacher will never give the answer without helping the student own why they got to that answer. Notice how it's been eight chapters and Jesus hasn't simply just jumped up on the stage and said, I'm the Messiah. Come on, everybody. Can't you see it? Notice how he keeps nudging and prompting and prodding his disciples going, didn't you see this? Remember when I fed the 5,000? What, what happened there? And, and remember how many basketfuls here? And even at the end of that, he says, still can't you understand? He must have been so tempted in that moment to go, guys, this is who I am, and finish the sentence. But yet he waits patiently. And by the way, God waits patiently for us. If, if you're considering the claims of Jesus, you're still checking this out, you're still looking at the scriptures, hey, Jesus wants to walk with you. He, he doesn't just walk with people who are totally convinced about the claims of Christ. He walks with all of us. And he walks gently and he walks patiently. And I want to encourage you to keep walking with him and keep asking those big and important questions of Jesus. Because as a master rabbi, as an incredible teacher, he will begin to coach you and to ask the important questions that live inside of us, that live in this world, that are answered in scripture. And as you thoughtfully walk with him, he begins to show who he really is. Next week, as we look at the crescendo chapter, we'll see that one or two of his disciples actually get it. And what a moment. But do you spot the tragedy here? Did you see what happened in this moment? You see, the Pharisees come to Jesus 
and they ask a question. But they don't uh, ask a question like uh, ordinary people. It says that they questioned him and they asked him for a sign. Now, I don't know about you, but this is an interesting type of interaction because I sometimes find myself feeling fairly compassionate towards the Pharisees. It's, it's an interesting moment. Don't you sometimes go, hey, man, Jesus, give them a break. They're just asking for a sign. Like, I wouldn't mind a sign. Maybe I can just help you a little bit because it's, a, it's an interesting interaction and maybe it requires a little bit of study because this, these two words that give us the clue to understanding what was really going on here. Firstly, the word question. You see, it says that the Pharisees came to Jesus and they questioned him. That word question is used only four times in Mark's writing. And it's used three times when the Pharisees are asking Jesus uh, and, and questioning him. And then one other time when Satan is testing and tempting Jesus. You see, the nature of this word question is actually a kind of questioning that a lawyer might do when they are trying to prove the guilt of another party. It's questioning to try trap someone and catch them out. That's the kind of questioning they're doing. And really what they're trying to do is they're trying to trap Jesus into proving or disproving that he is not from God and that in fact he comes from the evil one. That's what Satan was trying to do. He was trying to turn him. He was trying to question him so that he could turn him to the dark side, so to speak. Hey, the other important word is the word sign. You see, these uh, Pharisees are asking for a sign. They're saying, they question him and they say, give us a sign. Now, the word sign is very different to the word miracle. You see, the word uh, miracle uh, translated was the word dynamis. And that's not the word that's being used here. The word here is the word simeon, which is a word for sign. Give us a sign. What they're asking for is a, they're trying to trap him and, and trying to get him to give some sort of sign to prove that he is from God. Isn't that interesting? He's performed so many signs. Why are they asking for another one? Except that you know that they are questioning him to try to trap him. And he says, if you're trying to trap me, I won't give you a sign because I've already shown you who I am and what I can do. And so he pushes back because he understands that they are trying their best to trap him. Now, they get in the boat and uh, the disciples are fairly confused because they've had this strange interaction. And then they get in the boat and, and they forgot to bring dinner. I mean, really, what kind of disciples are they? They forget supper. And then Jesus goes and says, be careful. Watch out for the, the, the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. These poor disciples. I mean, they're still trying to understand who Jesus is, trying to you know, grow in their revelation of him. And they're thinking, oh, maybe it's because we forgot supper. And Jesus goes, no. That's not the point. Can't you see yet? And this master teacher again says, I want you to understand who I am. Be careful that you don't get caught out with the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, this is probably the moment we need to ask a big question. What is that yeast? I mean, it was a tragic departure moment that just happened. Jesus got into the boat and he leaves these Pharisees. They're questioning him. They're distanced from Jesus. The, the result of, of uh, this moment, this interaction, is the disciples stay close. They enjoy comfort. They get in the boat because Jesus is there and he continues to counsel and teach them. And yet you've got these Pharisees 
who are left, a bit like me walking away from Nikki the first time we dated and kind of going, I've got distance, I've disillusioned, I thought this was going to work out, but it hasn't. And there's all kinds of distorted views. That was the result for these Pharisees. They were left in the dark, in the mist, uncertain and disillusioned. That's what happens when we're not close to Jesus, when we have some barriers. I want to ask some questions then. What happened? What happened in the life of the Pharisees that got them to this point of basically missing who stood right before them? It's a really important question because if there are some keys, if Jesus is giving this warning, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. And yeast, uh, whilst it was really helpful and most of us learned in lockdown the wonder of yeast and baking our own bread. I don't know why, but everybody started baking bread and we saw that yeast was crucial. Most of the time in the, in the Old and the New Testament, yeast symbolized evil and its ability to insidiously get deep into the hearts of humans and wired into the culture. And it insidiously moves very subtly. And, and, and Jesus is saying, be careful of the influence. Be careful of the ways of thinking and being of these Pharisees and of Herod because it will infiltrate your way of being and you might miss out. And Jesus doesn't want that for his disciples. So I want to suggest here that Jesus is providing a warning. And he's going to give it to them, but it could be good for us. And we're going to try to discover what are some of the yeasts, what are some of the things that could help uh, cause us to miss out on the king who stands right before us, miss out on this beautiful Messiah. Let me suggest four things, and I'll take you through them. Firstly, wonky expectations. I said it, wonky expectations. Hey, this was a fascinating encounter, the clash of powers. And Jesus says the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod, the main thing that was going on is they had totally whacked out and wonky expectations of who the Messiah would be. That, that's what's going on. Herod basically was Rome's puppet king. And uh, some people, believe it or not, were actually happy with Herod. They were like, just let Herod rule us. Yes, he'll do a bit for Rome and a bit for us. And it's a working model. The Pharisees kind of had a totally different view. They wanted a, a strong political Messiah who would come in and who would ransom Israel with political strength and military might and would basically rescue them from the oppressive Roman rule. And Jesus says, be careful of both of those. Both those expectations are totally wonky and off. The Messiah is nothing like you think. He's going to come in a whole new way. He's bringing about a kingdom of love. And he's a king with great compassion and incredible provision. Hey, this, is, this was a major mistake. Their expectations were so off. I don't know about you and your life, but how often do you maybe have wonky expectations about who Jesus is and how he should behave? What do you, what do you kind of expect of him? And could your expectations limit you from seeing who he really is? I want to suggest that if we've got wonky expectations, much like with the Pharisees, the result will be just like this. Distance and distrust and disillusionment and uh, distorted views of Jesus. That's basically what's going to happen. That's the, that's the result. And it happens in our lives, right? You've got an expectation and you get the reality and the gap leaves you feeling like, whoa, but if we begin to get right expectations of who this king is and how he truly behaves, we begin to get in his slipstream and begin to enjoy who he is and, and what he's like. Wonky expectations. 
Have, have we got some in our own thought life and we're disillusioned with Jesus because we expected something? Hey, maybe it's not that Jesus is wrong. Maybe it's that we missed something and that we could realign our expectations to uh, align to him and his kingdom. Secondly, the other thing that could stop us and, and cause us to miss out on Jesus who's right before us, the king and his beautiful, compassionate kingdom is uh, prideful preferences uh, about who Jesus is and, and how he should behave. Uh, for example, Herod, he absolutely enjoyed John the Baptist and, and John the Baptist represented Jesus and his kingdom. In fact, he kind of didn't mind Jesus for a, for a while until they pushed back on his behavior. Until, until John said, hey, you, you can't marry your sister-in-law. And suddenly there was this offense that was taken and, and Herod said, no, I, I, I'm not interested. You can't tell me how I should live my life. I've got my preferences and, I, and I'm gonna live these ways whether you like it or not. And suddenly Herod pushes back. Remember Jesus' warning his disciples, be careful of the yeast of, of, the, of Herod and the Pharisees. There's these kinds of expectations that, uh, and preferences that begin to set into our hearts that cause us to go, you know what? If Jesus doesn't like my preferences, then I don't like him. And what happens is a kind of distance and a, a disillusionment begins to fill in. The Pharisees, hey, they wanted this, this Messiah to come in. And you know what their greatest hope was? Was that when the Messiah would come, he would look at the work that they had been doing and he would say, you guys are the main men. You've been waiting and you've been doing so well and you've held to the law so well. And instead, Jesus comes in and he says, no, you guys, your hearts are far from me. You're, you're trying to keep to the letter of the law, but you're totally distant from me. And they did not like that. Their preferences were totally thrown out of whack. Their prideful preferences left them unable to see who the true Messiah was. That can be true in our own lives. That can be true in our own lives where we have prideful preferences, where we simply say, do you know what? I have these views and I believe that Jesus also must have these views. And we have no space for the true rabbi to come teach us, for the true rabbi to come and inform our views, to, to reshape our hearts on certain matters. Hey, there's such a polarized world around us. And Jesus would say, be careful of the leaven of the, and, and the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod that make us want to shape Jesus into our preferences rather than let Jesus shape our preferences. Hey, thirdly, Jesus warns against a kind of sneaky cynicism, a sneaky and actually a celebrated cynicism. You, you spot the communities around both Herod and around the, the Pharisees. There's this incredible sense that in, in Herod's world, that when he uh, 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 took John's head on a platter, there was a group of people who went, well done, you are the real king and nobody is allowed to tell you what to do. And he gets applauded for his bravado, for his clear leadership. Hey, the Pharisees had a similar kind of celebrated cynicism. Hey, they too pushed back on Jesus' teachings and they became a much tighter force against Jesus, doubting and, and disputing with him. And, and uh, they became a team of people who lived in their little echo chamber of self-encouragement. But what happened is the more they lived in that community, the more they encouraged each other's cynicism, the further they got from actually seeing who was right before them. Hey, this reminds me a lot of our social media worlds that we're living in right now. 
how much of uh, the world that we live in is filled with people and opinions that basically celebrate each other's cynicism, that leave us all delighting in each other's frustrations. And uh, it often gets painted in a fairly moral kind of way and leaves many people going, thumbs up, many likes when you take down the opposition, when you make another grouping look silly because of your views, which are superior and more thoughtful and more wise but generally at the expense of others. Hey, Jesus goes, be careful of a sneaky cynicism that comes in because if you're comfortable to be cynical about so much, you become comfortable to be cynical about Jesus himself. And the result is distance, disillusionment, a distorted view of God, and often a heart that grows cold and unable to see the goodness of God that's right in front of us. Jesus says, be careful of this. Hey, be aware of the possibility that in your own soul, a kind of sneaky cynicism may well be rising up and revealing itself in different ways. Hey, maybe you do want to check. What are you lacking on social media? What are the, what is your main contributions when you're thinking about uh, politics and the world? And are you filled with cynicism or are you filled with a kind of faith? that says actually God is the true king and his kingdom is the one that will outlast every other kingdom. And we'd be wiser to have an optimistic view of God and his goodness than a cynical view of everything else because usually our cynicism will feed into our faith and the way we behave there. Hey, finally, there's a kind of stinky self-righteousness that, the, that, that, that was a representation of the yeast that Jesus warns his disciples against. It's this strange self-righteousness. Now, what is self-righteousness? What, what, is, what is going on there? Jesus warns, he says, those Pharisees, they've got a self-righteousness. He, he often warns the disciples about that self-righteous sense. I think self-righteousness is simply a conviction that, well, I've got it right and, and, and I don't need other help. And, and, and sometimes we go, no, I believe Jesus was a great teacher. Self-righteousness is the little gap between believing he's a great teacher and applying his life and his love in a way that says, I need him. Hey, how many people looked at Jesus and probably went, yeah, he does great stuff. But you know what? I'll take a bit of him and I'll take a bit of this and actually I'll be okay if I mainly use my strength. Hey, maybe the best description is to go back to my relationship with Nick's. We dated for three months. And I was five and I still am five and a half years older than her. At the time, I was uh, sort of getting deeper into my career, was surrounded by people um, in kind of our uh, sort of leadership circles who were usually at least 10 years older and more experienced, who had kids. And, and, and there I am dating a first year student. And a sneaky, horrible self-righteousness began to rise inside of me going, you know what, she may be amazing. She may be filled with character but she hasn't done what I've done. She hasn't seen what I've seen. She hasn't been through this stuff and she doesn't have the friends that I've gotten. And a kind of self-righteousness began to rise up inside of me to the point that it became easy to distance myself and to eventually break up with her. It's a strange sense of superiority that rises up to the point that we go, I just don't think I need it anymore. And that happens in our faith. That happens in the way that we relate to God all too often. And it's dangerous. It's a stinky self-righteousness that permeates so much of the way that we often relate to God. Let me land by helping us with a few ways to, to respond. You see, 
uh, six and a half months later, after a lot of humbling and prayer, I found myself going, I think I've made a big mistake. Nix is... She's, she's gold. She's, she's the kind of person I really want to marry. And so much of my own cynicism and self-righteousness got between me and realizing that she is brilliant. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that marriage is superior and I'm not trying to paint a romantic view of which is best. All I'm using is an illustration here to, see, to say that sometimes we can be blinded from the good that's right in front of us and we need some humbling to open our eyes. And Jesus says, be careful, because sometimes the leaven of the Pharisees can do the same. The mist can come over, and we might miss out on the goodness of the king who loves us so much. Hey, I don't know which one in your life is most likely to get between you and seeing Jesus. Is it wonky expectations, or prideful preferences, or sneaky cynicism, or stinky self-righteousness? I don't know which one it is for you, but I do know that whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether you've been following him for a long time or not, the tendency is still for these to rise up and want to permeate our thinking and our, and our feeling. What was the solution? What did the disciples do? How did they find themselves moving towards a great revelation of the one who stood before them? Well, you go back to verse 13 and you realize in that moment that the Pharisees stood there filled with their self-righteousness and cynicism and Jesus got into the boat. But isn't it interesting that actually it's almost taken for granted that the disciples got in with him. They got into the boat with him. And I don't know if you two are maybe kind of flirting and going, you know what, some of the Pharisees' points are good. Some of that cynicism makes sense. Some of those views make sense. You, you, none of us are the finished product. None of us fully understand all of who Jesus is. But here's a great answer. Get in the boat with Jesus. Because that's what the disciples did. Because it's in that boat that Jesus began to talk and began to explain and began to make sense of himself and began to help them to see that who was before them was better than they first thought and that the king of this kingdom is much more compassionate than they could imagine and he truly is who he says he is and that understanding will grow not from a distance, not filled with cynicism, not filled with uh, all kinds of um, doubt and disappointment and wonky expectations, but when we get in the boat with him. And to get in the boat with Jesus is to continue to be on mission with him. It's to continue to be present with him. And morning by morning, waking up and saying, I don't always get you, but I want you and I want to know you better. I'll open my Bible. I will pray and I will grow in a revelation of you. It's to want to become more like him and to say, you know what? I'm far from being fully formed into the image of Jesus, but I will continue to put myself in the boat with you and say, teach me, train me, change this heart of mine so that it becomes more like you. Hey, get in the boat of the mission with Jesus and say, I don't know exactly where you're going and I don't know how to do it all, but I'll go with you. Hey, that's, that's how we begin to push back on all these dangerous expectations, preferences, cynicism, and self-righteousness. Hey, today, I wonder if you would get in the boat with Jesus and begin to walk the walk with him, asking the questions you need to ask and letting the rabbi teach you. Let's pray. Jesus, as we walk with you, we don't have it all together. We don't have all the understanding. We don't have everything sorted. All we do have
is the knowledge that you want to be present with us, that you want to coach us. God, there's so many external influences, so many powerful things that come our way that want to try to um, breed cynicism or self-righteousness that make us feel like we don't need you. But today we freshly lay those before you and ask for your grace that you as a rabbi would come coach us and teach us and walk with us so that those will subside and the comfort and the clarity and the beautiful counsel that you give would become louder and more precious so that we can see you as the king of your kingdom and we can be representatives of your beautiful kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.